Welcome to the Biology of Trauma podcast, the show that provides professionals with the knowledge and tools for effective science-based solutions for the trauma healing journey. I am your host, Dr. Amy, and I've done the hard work so you can stop your endless searching, have a roadmap for your own work, and be able to help others more powerfully. Welcome to this episode of the Biology of Trauma podcast. I am your host, Dr. Amy, and this is the second episode with Dr. Steve Porges talking about the polyvagal. My favorite quote from this episode is polyvagal theory is an optimistic viewpoint. And it means that it acknowledges that many people have difficulties feeling safe, but it doesn't mean that they are destined to feel that way forever. In episode one with Dr. Porges, we looked at what does the polyvagal lens say about attachment, freeze, and functional diseases, and the first step, becoming a witness to our body and safety, functional diseases like fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, irritable bowel syndrome, and even COVID. We looked at step one. What is step one? What is step one for us through the polyvagal lens? Where do we start? Where do we start with the work? Where do we start with reconnecting with our body? How do we start to bring regulation to a system that has been dysregulated through the lens of the polyvagal theory? This is the sequel to that. If you didn't catch episode one, Dr. Stephen Porges is a distinguished university scientist at Indiana University, where he is the founding director of the Traumatic Stress Research Consortium and a professor of psychiatry at the University of North Carolina. He served as president of the Society for Psychophysiological Research and the Federation of Associations in Behavioral and Brain Sciences, and is a former recipient of a National Institute of Mental Health Research Scientist Development Award. He has now published more than 400 peer-reviewed scientific papers across several disciplines that have been cited in more than 50,000 peer-reviewed papers. He holds several patents involved in monitoring and regulating autonomic state. Dr. Porges is the originator of the polyvagal theory, a theory that I say is no longer a theory. It's a It's a model, it's a lens that emphasizes the importance of physiological state and the expression of behavioral, mental, and health problems related to traumatic experiences. In this episode, I am going to pick up from the last minute of our first episode with Dr. Porges to then go into these five specific things you will get from this episode. Defining neuroception and how it is different than perception. Findings from preterm babies in the NICU and what we learned about safety and survival. The relationship challenges of those born preterm. How understanding state regulation is more important than understanding neuroplasticity. Interesting tool for the nervous system, an oscillating tilt table that Dr. Porges has used. I'm excited for the rest of this interview and let's jump in. And so what the polyvagal theory is, this notion of social sociality as being a neuromodulator of health, uh, fight flight as being defensive, and then shutting down is literally 
implosive or dying off in terms of the bacteria or mitochondria, that these are literally the rules of living systems. And we have, and what we've done, and this is part of what our society has kind of taught us, it's really said we're above that, all of that. We're so smart, we're so cortical. We don't have to listen to what the brainstem is trying to teach us. And we just will, we'll just, we'll, we'll show the brainstem that as it monitors our bodily organs, we don't have to follow that. We can work more hours, we can numb our bodies, we can make more money, publish more papers, get bigger grants. It's all the same, we can keep mobilized. But our bodies want something else. They wanna feel safe. And our evolutionary history created these bio-neural or bio-behavioral portals, sociality of feeling safe in the arms of another or with another safe person. And that is like the mother and the infant. The infant thrives in the arms of the mother. Well, the adult thrives in the arms of another safe person as well, or your puppy thrives in the arms of a person because our bodies need to feel a context of safety. And that safety is optimized with another, and the term I use is appropriate mammal, because you know people with trauma histories, many of them do extraordinarily well co-regulating with dogs or horses, but their nervous system through the associations I don't want to be near people. But Steve, can't I can't I tell myself that I that I feel safe? Can't I tell myself that I should feel safe? Can't okay. I so, can't I can, meditate? Can't I go to yoga and say an affirmation, say my morning mantra like you, what, can, what? you can do whatever you want. <laughs> I, 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 I'm not evaluated. Let's start off by can I first be a good witness of who I am? Yeah. Okay. Can I can I acknowledge the vulnerabilities, can I hear my body talking to me? And what we start finding out is, you know, in the world, of, I would say that in the world of trauma, where my intrusion or invitation into the world of trauma has taught me what it is to be a human being. Why and how? Because I could see and hear what's been lost from putting the body into a state of chronic defense. The wishes, the intentions, just like you rolled out that whole can't I. Those are a person who suffered from complex trauma has those same intentions. They want the relationship, they want to feel safe. But you know what happens when they try to implement that their body says no. So there is that's where this term neuroception comes in. Their intentionality, even their interpretation through perception can be very typical or, or say optimal. But their neuroception says, I don't trust your intentional behaviors. I got hurt following them. I'm not doing it again. And so the neuroception is your guardian and said, I'm not allowing you to hurt yourself. And so there is a degree of a re-education or re tuning of that system. And that is, in a sense, the whole theme of SE, the somatic experience. And it's the theme of what polyvagal theory does too. And it encourages people to feel, get the experience and not have the label of threat from it. And so let's put in another uh, kind of metaphor. Some people like roller coasters. I love roller coasters, and but I don't want to jump out of a 10-story window. But I could conceptualize the roller coaster as having a safe context. So I could experience that visceral dropping as a novelty. 
And even though that visceral feeling is the same feeling of jumping out of a window, it's not the same consequence to my body. So I could use the intentionality to frame and then have, I would say, an amazing expansive set of experiences. And a lot of people understand that. I wasn't doing it to numb my body out because I was in deep pain. A lot of people who are numb will try things to try to trigger any feeling. And so in the world of trauma, we realize that when people have turned off their feedback loops, they may try to do high-risk behaviors to get feelings, cutting themselves, burning themselves, you know, all these types of sensory inputs. I used to over-exercise in order to feel just even oh. the physical pain. Like I was one of those that came out of my childhood with a pretty strong pull towards the that freeze and shutdown. Hmm. And so kind of going through life, just feeling like I'm just going through the motions, feel a little numb. And so physical pain was almost like a, a welcome thing. Cause like I can feel my legs, I can feel my body. And possibly part of the over-exercising was that I, I wasn't aware of when I should stop because I wasn't feeling enough. <laughs> right? Yeah. So. Interesting. It, it, you know, uh, yeah. And so it, it's the notion that it, it it's like, I want to feel my body. And, and my body says that when I'm under threat, the thresholds have been raised. It's kind of like if I'm locked into a sympathetically dominated defense system, uh, peripheral pain levels are going to be raised because that's what you do when you fight. I'm going to ask you to, to take a, a specific example that I'm going to give you and explain why it would not be safe to be in the body and the downstream consequences of that into adulthood on the physiology. And then because so much of what we do here with the biology of trauma is actually working with the biology to increase one's capacity to even tolerate uncomfortable things, which is like being in the body and actually feeling the body. So let's take the example of a baby who was born and maybe even born premature or had other issues and had to go to the NICU. Yeah. So they're in the neonatal ICU and they're distanced from their mom, they're getting poked, they're having procedures. What would be happening in that baby's physiology in, through this polyvagal lens? Okay. So fortunately, I've actually done research in the NICU, so I can tell you exactly. Uh, when a baby is born before the age of 32 weeks, which is really what you're talking about, the ventral vagus, the calming system, is not on board. So they are tend to autonomically be mobilized in our metaphor, have tachycardia as their only defense, as their only reaction to the world. And when that gets too high or too much, they shut down. They, they go basically into a reptilian uh, defense mode because their autonomic nervous system is not mammalian yet. At about 32 weeks gestational age onward, that ventral vagus starts coming on. And what you get with that is enhanced suck, swallow, breathing, facial expressivity, vocalizations, and vagal control of the heart. It's all the same system. It comes from the same area of the brainstem. And so there's another set of consequences. And that is when a baby's born prematurely, it's not the cute, interactive, cuddly uh, baby. It's a very vulnerable uh, basically is a fetus. And many of the parents feel alienated because they I have this expectation. They want to coo, they want to smile, they want a baby that conforms. They don't want a baby in rigidity who's in a sense fighting for life through defense mechanisms. Um, 
And in a sense, in the NICU, what you see is frequently the babies go into these massive bradycardias. And my neonatology friends, they call it death spells. And in the old days, to get the kid out of a death spell, they used to just kind of like bang on the isolate. I don't think they do that now, but the idea was to startle the system and then it will come back to a defense. And that was the expectation. But it's extraordinarily polyvagal. It's going down through the older conservation defense, which the preterm doesn't have the energy resources. So the example is that the baby in the premature bit is in a defense mode and all the experiences are about threat. And so this, so I was involved in a project in which a person, this is Martha Welsh at Columbia University was doing what she was calling uh, nurture, nurture interventions, basically lots of time with the mothers, a lot of smell, a lot of kind of, you know, just the whole family of cues. Uh, and this actually, in many ways, built on Heidi Alls' ideas that if you teach the staff in the intensive care unit about the uniquenesses of each individual preterm, they'll start having an identity. The parents will be more accepting, as opposed to thinking of it as just something that doesn't have human-like qualities. So in this project with Martha, we looked at in a sense, autonomic regulation, looked at that vagal control, and we looked at how efficient that vagal regulation heart was actually regulating heart rate. And I call that vagal efficiency. And you could see it developing from uh, early at birth, which could be anywhere from 28 to 30 weeks. And then you could see it near discharge being much higher. So vagal control, ventral vagal control increased more rapidly in the intervention group and the vagal regulation was more efficient and showed greater sleep state differences. This is really quite remarkable in terms of accelerating maturation or say allowing maturation to occur because maturation is impeded by the the threat demands on that preterm baby. And so the secret was by giving cues of making that nervous system of the preterm feel safer maturation could follow its normal time course. And I'm just thinking of what the downstream effects of their life are going to be and how different those two groups would have into adulthood, into their physical health, mental health. I mean, everything, their, their autonomic nervous system would have been wired very differently from the beginning and what a difference that would have made for their life. Well, they are following them. And at five years, they were finding differences. So that was really good. But I want to share another point about what you brought up. I have been, okay, before the pandemic, I was traveling a lot and giving a lot of talks. And one of the speakers at one of the conferences came up to me and she said that she had a preterm child. And it was, I said, how, at what age? It was very young. It was born at 25 or 26, which is very, very young. And I said, how's the child doing? And the first response, of course, is that she's very bright. She's doing very well. On the, I said, tell me about relationships, which is the magic word. She doesn't have a clue. So what you are seeing is that this social engagement system uh, with the intonation of voice. Now, remember, the social engagement system of being able to extract human voice, to have prosody in your vocalizations, to facially express, to use head gesture is linked, it's using the same structures 
that that neonate was using for suck, swallow, and breathe. And that circuit is not developed at the time of birth for preterms. So they're being too fed or others. And so this initial ex normal exercises of sucking is being uh, delayed uh, or impacted on by keeping the baby alive through normal medical care. And so we're going to basically always talk about neural exercises. So suck, swallow, breathing or ingestion is the infant's first way of co-regulating and regulating. And that same circuit is used through our social engagement behaviors. So as we get older, sticking food in people's mouths doesn't come as much as looking at them and smiling at them. Mm-hmm. And eating together. Eating together. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but think about people who eat by themselves. And I had the idea that perhaps we could treat eating disorders through an eating club in which everyone was on a, a smartphone and they could eat as much as they wanted as long as they talked to each other. I'm waiting for someone to do the project. That sounds amazing. I've got some people who work in that industry. So let's put together a study because that. Yeah. That would be amazing to see the difference of that social engagement and the co-regulation with that when someone is using that as a coping mechanism to regulate when they don't have those other resources. Mm -hmm. But even I'm just thinking of a baby who had those types of experiences in early life and then you ask them, so Steve, here you come and you're like, okay, it's time to, it's time to become a witness to your body. It's time to feel what's going on in your body. And they're going to be like, no, like my body does not feel like a safe place to be. Like I don't even want to, it's not, yeah. it's not, I'm, I'm not even, I would imagine mm-hmm. many of them like don't even want to be willing. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're bringing a very interesting point up and you see, we all enter the world thinking that we feel like everyone else. And what we're really understanding is we don't share all the same experiences. Our physiological states are not the same. So even external stimuli affect us differentially. I kind of have this question that I ask people about stillness. Is stillness something they welcome or something they try to stay away from? Now, for me, I I really welcome stillness. But for many people that I know very, very well, Stillness is very frightening. It's vulnerability. And what we're talking about is if we immobilize, which is stillness, we are vulnerable. And But for me, stillness is accessibility. So we can see the same features affecting people differently. And I thought the real uh, role, let's say, of therapy or intervention is to enable people to feel safe. I didn't realize that feeling safe, let's say, accessible and still, was a trigger for those who carried a trauma history. So for those who carry a trauma history, that immobilization, which I'm calling safe stillness accessibility, is a frightening experience to them. They have to get, it's we would call it anxiety producing, but it's really saying their body is going into a state of defense and, we have, and they have to get out of there, can't, can't be there. And so much of your work and what you have given us is this emphasis on the need for safety. Yeah. And so being able to bring in tools to gently lead people along this step towards finding that connection with themselves as safe. 
Yeah. And and how important that is. But I want to make one, I think it's important. Yep. <laughs> and, and that is, I'm optimistic and polyvagal theory is an optimistic viewpoint. And it means that it acknowledges that many people have difficulties feeling safe, but it doesn't mean that they are destined to feel that way forever. So I feel that our natural state is to feel safe in the arms of another and that we can develop strategies to lead us along that journey and path. And we don't have to, in a sense, be an advocate for the way we are, in a sense, keep the world, you know, this, if, I, if I become still, I'm vulnerable, therefore, I don't want stillness around me, that we can develop toolkits to enable us to expand our experience as humans and not have to advocate being in this very restricted life space. And like you have just said it perfectly, what, what is the reason behind what I do here with the biology of trauma is that, yes, we have to address the biology. We have to address the physiology. We have to look at some of these things that are impacting our nervous system and its ability to rewire for safety even. Yeah. But we also have to start with the experience. And so I don't work with people's biology until I can have them even just be a witness. And we do some of the somatic work and and it's it's all it's all bringing everything together. I can't yeah, yeah. we can't separate it like we have in the past. Sure. So, thank you for this. I am gonna have to just have you come back and talk about some of the adaptive significance of the dissociation. We weren't able to get to that today, and I would love for you just to give our your sixty second version of your tilt table and how you have used that in order to help create a felt sense of safety for your nervous system and give people a practical well, practical idea for tools? Well, there aren't a lot of tools in your house. Um, I, what we want to talk about is really neural exercises. And there was a kind of a, illusion towards neuroplasticity, but I don't think you need to go there. I think you need to go into understanding state regulation and moving between states and that we just haven't been able to access the states of our nervous system because we haven't felt safe. The tilt table is my venture every morning into triggering my blood pressure receptors. Uh, so I do actually quite vigorous tilts from uh, this direction to that direction uh, to challenge the system to build a, uh, so it's not a threat, it's in a sense developing resilience of my autonomic nervous system because blood pressure posture shifts are powerful in terms of triggering a autonomic compensation to maintain constant uh, oxygenated blood flow to your brain. And as you get older, and I'm getting older, um, I decided that it was important for me to keep a resilient autonomic nervous system. So for me, tilting uh, was that. I had also built around 30 years ago an oscill oscillating tilt table, which no one ever wanted to get off of because it rocked at such a peaceful rhythmicity that was consistent with the vascular rhythms in our body. I don't have that anymore, unfortunately, but it was it was really quite remarkable. I had people who wouldn't get off of it uh, because they, they got on and they said, oh, this is, I'm here. Um, and I'm thinking about rebuilding it and redesigning it and making it available. Awesome. We have so much more to talk about and uh, we'll figure out how to create a new oscillating tilt table for you too. <laughs> well, think about the, our visualization of floating on waves uh, and think about head to toe 
not side to side. Side to side can be kind of a dizzy, and, but head to toe, like a mother rocking a baby. But we tend to rock in our breathing rhythm. Now slow it up to like once every 15 seconds and the body goes into another state. I love how you emphasize this state regulation. And yeah. uh, and we do have a lot of tools, a lot of the somatic tools and, and even yeah. some of these tools to help ourselves track and then be able to actually shift and yeah. regulate our own states. One, one final point that the world of trauma teaches you that it is state because one day a person is in a sense fine and then the traumatic event occurs and there is a mental reorganization instantaneously within a day and physiologically. So we know that it is a rapid, it's not a neuroplasticity, it's a state shift. And the question is, can we give the nervous system the appropriate cues to recover, to in a sense, reclaim our evolutionary heritage of being safe in the presence of another? And this is why I have learned to support my biology support my nervous system, support even that tendency for the shutdown rather than fight it. Thank you to you and your work. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much, Amy. Mm-hmm. Thank you for inviting me. This brings a wrap for this Biology of Trauma podcast episode. You can see why it has been so important for me to teach those in the Biology of Trauma professional training, the polyvagal lens. It provides principles that guide how we do the work and the right sequence of things. There are lots of things entering the trauma space that focus on neuroplasticity or experiences that won't require you to learn how to regulate your own states. Yet that is the foundational and first step for everyone, state regulation. I learned this lesson the hard way, both on my own healing journey from the chronic disease and then in helping others. I was trained in medicine and my tools were focused on the biology aspect. I have learned the starting place for everyone, becoming a witness to our body and learning state regulation. I teach people these skills on a 21-day journey that starts with the, the first week of just learning how to create a felt sense of safety for the body with very basic somatic exercises. It is the place to start, not psychedelics, CBT, exposure therapy, or whatever other therapies you want to put on the list. The place to start is learning state regulation and creating safety for the body to even feel safe. Yes, the biology of trauma professionals start with the 21-day journey and then three weeks of parts work as part of their foundational module for their professional training. I will do another podcast episode on how they have found that foundation necessary for their own training through the biology of trauma modules. Since we go deep into topics like freeze, grief, attachment, stress, and letting go, we can't do the deeper work and the deeper study until we have the skills of our own state regulation and creating the felt sense of safety, support, and safe expansion for our own autonomic nervous system. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the biology of trauma podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Amy. As you go, please leave a review so that I know what you like, what you would like more of, and I can bring you that. On the website for this episode, 
you will find the supplement that can be helpful for the body stuck in a chronic freeze response. The link to episode one with Dr. Porgas on the polyvagal lens and other helpful YouTube videos on the freeze response. So you can start to understand your own better with that much love. And I will see you on the next episode. Thank you for joining me today. If you enjoyed today's show, be sure to subscribe. We definitely will learn, laugh, and sometimes cry together on this healing journey. And you won't want to miss an episode. Give my podcast five stars, share it with a friend or colleague. If you felt an impact as it truly helps get the word out and breaking the paradigm of how we do trauma work. I look forward to seeing you back here next week. Until then, this is your host, Dr. Amy, sending you lots of love. Oh, 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 o